Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up Podcast. We have been going through the prophets here over the last couple of weeks, and we are currently in the prophet uh, Amos. And uh, we'll be looking at Amos today, and we'll probably talk a little bit about Obadiah briefly at the end, just because uh, he's a one-chapter prophet, only one chapter uh, to speak of. And so um, in our reading plan, he will be here today, gone tomorrow. And uh, so we'll catch him at the tail end of what we have to say about Amos. And I think it's very suitable and fitting because there is a a contrast that needs reconciled between Obadiah and Amos. But we'll get to that briefly. Amos is unique, uh, like Hosea was unique, because Amos and Hosea are one of the uh, only prophets that are sent to the northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, Most of the prophets that we'll be reading through are sent specifically to the house of Judah, the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom has gone through a period of prosperity while uh, those in Judah have actually suffered an economic decline and they have become uh, subordinate to the northern kingdom in many ways. And um, it's in that climate that this shepherd is called to go from Judah to the northern kingdom. And you can just understand why that was not well received. This is a um, southern kingdom person that is not received in the northern kingdom. It is a shepherd who's not a person of great influence or power. In fact, when Jeroboam the king hears about Amos and the message that he's been communicating to the people, In Bethel, he tells Amos to go back to the southern kingdom and spread his message there, his message of destruction and judgment and all that. He doesn't want to hear it. And Amos responds to him and says, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. And when he says that, we need to quickly pause and look at what he means by that statement. And what that means is he has not been formally trained in the school of prophets. We talked about that in a previous episode that many of the prophets that uh, are, are recorded in scripture are people that have been trained up in the school of prophets, sometimes referred to as the sons of prophets. And uh, we sometimes forget and we think of prophets as just regular old guys that get zapped by the Spirit of God and are given this divine utterance and they can't help themselves, but they spew out uh, heavenly words against their own will and against their own understanding. But that's not necessarily the case. And there might be some version of that that takes place and transpires at times. But most of the time, these prophets were learned men who had studied under other prophets. And that's why uh, Elijah and Elisha and the other prophets that are uh, with them uh, continue to group together in similar areas because they are studying together. They are learning together. They are figuring out how to speak prophetically. And so there is some learned ability there, but Amos does not fit that category. He is one of these guys who is given a direct message from God, and therefore he comes and he gives it, and he tells Jeroboam, I'm not like those other prophets. I'm not here to you know, wax philosophical with you. I'm not here to uh, play prophet games. I just have a message from God. And uh, when I'm done telling it, I'll probably go back to my sheep. 
And uh, that is the message he has. The message that he brings is what we have written in the book. Uh, and this book has a word, not just for Israel, but for many nations. In the opening chapter, uh, we see God calling out Damascus. He calls out Gaza. He calls out Tyre. Uh, he calls out Judah, uh, and then he calls out Israel in, in chapter 2. Uh, and the reason he's calling them out, he's saying judgment's coming, and he gives reasons why judgment is coming. And uh, for Damascus, it says, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. So they're very violent with their uh, iron swords and chariots. The Gaza, uh, people of Gaza, he says, it's because they deported an entire population. Uh, the people of Tyre. It's because they delivered up an entire population to Edom uh, for the Edomites. He says, it's because you pursued your brother with the sword. He's bringing judgment to the people of Ammon because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. And then he turns his attention to the Jewish people. And in chapter 2, he calls them out and says that punishment is coming upon the house of Judah. Well, he starts with Moab, and he says because they burned the bones of the king of Edom. I think that's interesting and worth taking a pause over because this is not a violent attack against the Israelites. Sometimes we think God is only punishing the nations that have harmed Israel. But this is a non-Jewish country that has done wrong to another non-Jewish country, and God thought it worthy to bring to attention that punishment was coming upon the Moabites for their wrongdoing against another non-Jewish entity. And so that brings some clarification that God is not only working around the Israelites. He is expressing his lordship, and he is operating sovereignly across the globe, uh, even beyond what we have recorded in Scripture. He is always working at the national level. He is always working uh, in judgment and in um, bringing, bringing about vindication for those who have been wronged. And certainly that will come to its fullest expression in the end of time at the last judgment, but he still brings judgment today. And so then moving on, as I said, to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, he speaks first to Judah, and he says that their sin is that they rejected the law of the Lord. And so he lays out the consequences for that. Now, Judah is going to certainly be guilty of much more than that and can be um, fleshed out in more detail than that. But because Amos is kind of building up to his focal audience, the Israelites, the northern kingdom, uh, he simply leaves it at that, rejected the law of the Lord and moves on. And so each person kind of has this one thing that summarizes their grand iniquity and transgression against the law of God. And when he gets to Israel, however, he lays out a lot. And so when we get to verse 6 of chapter 2, uh, it says, Thus says the Lord, for the transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, 
also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. He goes on to say in verse 12, they make the Nazarites drink wine. And they command the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy, which is exactly what they do to Amos when he shows up. They say, you stop prophesying. We don't want to hear it. And Amos isn't the only one, they say, um, to stop prophesying. And in this picture, this caricature of Amos or of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, we see that they have resorted to drunkenness. They have resorted to sexual immorality. They have resorted to idolatry and oppression of the weak and the helpless and the humble. And uh, this just captures how sin has uh, pervaded the entire landscape of the Israel belief system and the way that they do business, the way that they operate on a daily uh, level. And God is bringing the punishment because of that. And so uh, Amos calls upon them to forsake their idolatrous ways. He will mention over and again throughout this book the places of Bethel, Gilgal, um, Beersheba, and Dan. And those were all areas in the northern kingdom that had become the um, replacement temples or, or altars for that which they were supposed to uh, go to uh, in Jerusalem. Instead of going to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, they've now erected these other altars that become a substitute for the real place of worship because they do not want their people going down to the southern kingdom, to the capital, Jerusalem, where the king is, and having any kind of favorable outlook on that region. Uh, they have separated, and they want their own system. And in doing so, they've sinned against God because the covenant required that they worship where God makes his name known. And so that's why you see Gilgal, and that's why you see Bethel pop up over and again. In the middle of this book, God warns the people that the day of the Lord is coming upon them, and it will not be favorable. It says in verse 18 of chapter 5, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And this is a reminder to us, uh, just as we have a future day of the Lord approaching, not everybody will interpret that day the same. Some of us will view it as a delight, and some of us will view it as tragic. And God is warning the people of the northern kingdom that the day that he comes, and, and this is probably referring not to the end time judgment, but to the day of the Lord that's coming upon them in their immediate context, the uh, a, approach of Assyria and the other armies that will be coming upon them and devastating the land. It, it's a day of tragedy because of their sinful state, because they are living outside of the covenantal agreement, they are going to face extreme punishment and hardship and death. And um, those of us living today, we too will face a judgment. And so to be in covenant with God and in a righteous standing because of our faithful relationship with Jesus Christ, that will make the day of the Lord an actual glorious day, a, a day that is well received and a day that is looked upon favorably, whereas those who are not in covenantal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it will be the worst possible 
day that they can imagine. And so what God is doing in the northern kingdom is he is he is reversing the blessings that have been given to them. One of the things I noticed as I was reading through in chapter 5 and verse 11, it says, Though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. And I think the language being used there is meant to be a reversal of the promises that were made to Abraham and to those who were traveling with Moses going into the promised land because he had told them that they would go and be given this land and live in houses that they did not build. And they would drink wine and eat from gardens that they did not plant. And so that was the blessing of God. He was going to give them all of this. Well, now it's come to a point where they have actually built houses themselves and planted vineyards themselves, and they're not going to get to enjoy the fruit of their labor. So it's even worse than uh, having never received something you didn't do. They are losing the things that they did do, the things that they had done with their own hands. Uh, And so I, I find that interesting to see the reversal of the covenantal blessings and promises there in the book of Amos. Uh, One last thing, as we kind of look at the end of this book, we see there's always that glimmer of hope in the prophets. Even though there's much judgment and there's a lot of uh, disaster and catastrophe that is coming upon the people, there's always a glimmer of hope. And when we get to chapter 9, it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it in, as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So that's a message of hope, but here's the fascinating thing about that message of hope, is it's completely revolving around the character David. Now, do you think Israel's receiving this well? No, because David is the one who represents the monarchy of the southern kingdom, Judah, not the northern kingdom. They have no association with David. They have no respect for David. They they don't honor the name David in the northern kingdom. And so when the prophet shows up and says, I'm going to restore the house of David as the monarchy and rebuild his dynasty, that's not really a message of hope for Israel based on what they want and what their expectations of the good life are. Um, But this is God's, his own expectation, his his version of the best life and the truest hope for the people uh, of Israel and the people of the whole world. In this promise, it says that when God rebuilds the booth of David, the the tent of David, this could be a reference to um, the 
festival booths and all that, but even the language of booth gets applied in certain ways to Jesus, who is the, the new temple of God, the new tabernacle of God. And so we see fulfillment here in the New Testament in Christ. But when he builds this and raises up this Davidic leader, he will be responsible for possessing the remnant of Edom. Now, Edom is not a Jew. Edom is not an Israelite. Edom has been an enemy. In fact, Edom has already been one of the people we already talked about who are coming under the judgment of God because of wrongdoing here. But in this day, when the booth of David is restored, there will be a remnant in Edom that are saved. And it's interesting to see the word remnant used with this other country. We often think of remnant as these people in Israel that are preserved and saved and that the remnant will uh, persevere through to the end and maybe there'll be a salvation of Israel through this remnant in the last day. But this is referencing the people of Edom who are non-Jewish. And then it goes on to say, and all the nations who were called by my name. And so there are people in all nations who will be called by the name of God who will be brought into this Davidic fellowship or, or, or rulership, I guess we should say. Uh, the Davidic king will rule over them, and that will bring about the days of restoration and these days of prosperity and peace that are described in these closing verses of Amos. Now, Obadiah, on the other hand, when we get to uh, the next page where Obadiah begins, at least in my Bible, um, we have a description of Edom here, uh, or Esau, rather. But Esau and Edom are the same. Esau and Edom are two different names for the same person and his tribe that descended from him. And what it says here in Obadiah in verse 17, it says, But on Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. And then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. And what's interesting is right after you read in Amos that God was going to save a remnant of Esau or Edom, you turn around and read that Obadiah, as he describes the latter days, the, the end of time, uh, many would say that this is a reference to eschatology, to these final days, that there's going to be a total destruction of Esau or Edom. Well, which is it? Is it a total destruction where they are annihilated and none are left, or will there be a remnant? And I think this is just a difference of perspective, um, because what I think the Bible teaches very clearly is in the end, there becomes one people of God. Whether you're an Edomite, whether you're an Ammonite, whether you are an Israelite, we all are brought into the body of Christ. And so we can be called a remnant, whether we descend from the people of Egypt or whether we uh, have our roots in a, a northern Norwegian uh, ethnic background. We all are a part of the remnant that has been called out by God, that has been preserved for his glory, and are a part of 
his church. And we are in that same body with Jewish people also. So they also have that language of remnant attached to them. So God is saving some from Israel. He is saving some from Africa. He is saving some from Spain and from Rome and from other uh, countries throughout the, the entire planet, all as his remnant that he has saved for his glory. And uh, so I think as we see these distinctions in Scripture, yes, Edom will be destroyed. But in the same sense, so will every other country, except for those who have been called out, who have, sort of, in a way, abandoned that national allegiance for a greater purpose and a greater allegiance, the kingdom of God, where there is no longer Jew or Greek, but just one kingdom one people in one body for God's glory. We'll stop there and we will see you next time on the Bible Brush Up Podcast.